What wonderful hymns to sing together. I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, I'll read from verse 16 through verse 24. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Let's pray. Every word that proceeds from your mouth, Father, is true. And I ask that we would hear what you have spoken to us in your word. Humble us, for we in ourselves are proud and unwilling to listen to you. But by your Spirit, Open our hearts that we would receive your truth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Christians should believe and do believe that there is more than you can see, hear, smell, taste, touch, feel. There's a realm beyond the physical. There's a supernatural world. What we believe may sound crazy to materialists or atheists. We believe that there are angels, that there are demons, that there is a God who created everything out of nothing. We believe that there have been miracles that have affected the whole world. Believe that there was a flood that covered the whole earth with water? That there is a God who divided a sea and had people pass through on dry ground? That there's a God who stopped up the Jordan River so the people could pass through into the promised land? That there was a real battle between Elijah and the prophets of Baal when fire came down from heaven and consumed the offering? 
that Jesus really fed 5,000 people, 5,000 men with five loaves and some fish that was divided among them. We believe that a man named Lazarus came back from the dead. These are all supernatural acts, supernatural events, and supernatural beliefs. We don't live in a merely materialistic world. You may not have seen a sea open up and you, for you to pass through on dry ground. You may not have seen a man come back from the dead. You may not have seen an angel or a demon. But if you're a believer, you know those things exist. But where does the supernatural world intersect with you most importantly? On our own, as humans, we are given over to what the Bible calls the flesh or our sinful nature. We live what, again, 1 Corinthians 3 refers to as a merely human life when we attempt to live our life apart from God. That is the kind of life that everybody lives prior to knowing Jesus Christ. It is a merely human life. It is only lived by your strength, your power, capacities, know-how. That's what you live by. And ultimately, what that coalesces into is a self-centered life. A life dominated by sin, where you are the most important person and thing in your life, and you live for yourself. Paul has just listed out what that type of life looks like in Galatians 5, verse 19. It is a self-centered life full of sexual immorality, strife, personal relational difficulties, indulgence in pretty much whatever you want, including self-righteousness. That's being merely human. A supernatural world collides with this human life by means of the Holy Spirit. And that is the primary place that we see the intersection of the supernatural with the human is in the transformation of human lives that are changed from being selfish to being other-centered, to being God-centered. And that is a miracle no less profound than the dividing of the sea or the feeding of the 5,000. Because it takes a person who is inward bent and puts them out of themselves to love God and love their neighbor. That's a supernatural act, one that cannot be brought about by your own strength. It is where the life of God intersects with a human life and creates something better than we can create on our own. It's really the life of God in you, not in the sense that you become eternal, omnipotent, glorious, and worthy of worship, but in the sense that you possess something of his moral quality, and you begin to live a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In other words, you bear the fruit of the Spirit when God comes to dwell in you by His Spirit. The Holy Spirit is better than the works of the flesh. As you read this text and you read the works of the flesh, they're ugly. 
You don't want to spend much time looking at them, experiencing them, smelling them. But as you look at the work, the fruit of the Spirit, it's lovely. It's a flower garden. It deserves your delight and your admiration. I want to show you this morning as we unpack the fruit of the Spirit, a lovely scene or a delicious meal that you would delight in, that it might reflect the kind of life that you would long to possess. We know something of the works of the flesh by experience. We know what that life looks like. We know what it manifests. The life in the Spirit is so much better. It is lovely. Paul calls the flesh works of the flesh, and he calls the Spirit the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit conjures up something lovely for us. If you're attentive this morning, I hope that you'll hear some attributes of a life that would be true living. A life that is full, not empty. A life that is meaningful, not purposeless. A life that is lived well, not wasted. When you live by the works of the flesh, that's a wasted life, an empty life. But when the fruit is born in you of the Spirit, You have something of a real life, a true life. First, we have to see that this fruit of the Spirit has an origin that is outside of yourself. It's called fruit of the Spirit for a reason. It's not fruit of Andy, not the fruit of you. It's the fruit of the Spirit. That means the Spirit is the one who produces it. He's the one who grows it. Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 15, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. This is the same thing as when Jesus says, you must be born again, or you must be born of the Spirit. The human life, apart from God, is a life that is dead in trespasses and sins, but God, by His Spirit, comes to you, and gives you new life of his spirit that develops something totally new from what you had possessed before. And this life in the spirit is something different. It's a life with God. Whereas previously, your life was lived without God. A life without God is the worst kind of curse. It's the absence of goodness. But with the gift of Christ also comes the gift of the Spirit and the very presence of God, not just around you because he is everywhere, but in you. The life of Christ in you now brought to you by the Holy Spirit is this great miracle. And you have your life transformed to live a life of the quality of Christ's life where you live in a vibrant relationship with God and with deep-seated love for your neighbor. And just as it is evident what the works of the flesh are, it is also evident when the Spirit is in your life because you will see the fruit manifest in you. We have to remember, however, that this Holy Spirit who comes to us is a pure gift. He is not someone who can be earned. 
We might be tempted to isolate verses 22 and 23 and even remove the first part of it and just isolate those attributes and say love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control and offer them to the world as if to say, look, these are the things that you really need and they do. These attributes and virtues are so beautiful that on their own they deserve our attention and we might be desirous to see the world follow these virtues and this morality. But this list cannot be given to a Hindu or a Muslim or an atheist and say, here, live by these rules. That strips the whole meaning of what these verses are here for. It would just turn it into another law if you were to give it to someone like that. Say here, live by love, live by peace, live by joy. And it would just become this iron sky over them that they could never receive any fruit from or any rain from that would produce any good in them. They are powerless to live it out and so are you on your own. The power to see the fruit of the Spirit in your life only comes by the Spirit. It's not just some tree that you go pick these fruits off. It comes from within. It comes by the presence of the Spirit in your life. People may be able to understand these terms just in a dictionary definition sense but you cannot understand them experientially or biblically without the Spirit in your life. The source of these is the Spirit of God who dwells in His people. And the Spirit is a gift received by faith. What does this spirit who comes to dwell in his people produce in his people? What will a life lived by the spirit look like? Some would think that a life lived by the spirit will be manifest in things like tongues and miracles. And certainly you see those manifestations in the early church. Corinth is a good example of that as they were gifted in a profound way by the Spirit and they had all of these miraculous displays about them. But the thing that was lacking among them was love and that's why you have the chief chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 right in the middle of the discussion on spiritual gifts. And so the chief attribute that comes to people who are indwelled by the Spirit is not primarily spiritual gifts, but the primary thing is Love, the real life lived by the Spirit, the fruit that He bears in your life is going to be primarily shown by a life lived in love. That's why the very first attribute identified is love. And all of the rest really cascade out of that one thing. Paul has already made a big emphasis of this in Galatians. In chapter 5, verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. 
Or 5 verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So it's no surprise when we come to the fruit of the Spirit and see that the very first attribute is love. Is love. True love is an attribute of the Spirit or a fruit of the Spirit because it cannot be generated by sinful human flesh. Sinful humanity is so turned inward on itself that really the only thing that it cares about is itself. If you listen to secular definitions of love or just in the vernacular, love would be defined as, I love the person who makes me feel good about myself. That's the complete opposite of what true love is. Often in our world, selfishness is mistaken for love. Well, Jesus tells us to love your enemies. How do they make you feel? Not that great, right? So our love is to be something other than just what makes us feel good. It is outward from ourselves to love something other than ourselves. And the main thing that we're to love is, of course, God. That's why this is a fruit of the Spirit and is only displayed in those who've received the Spirit. Because only those who have the Spirit in them truly love the true God. Love is divine for us in 1 John 3.16. says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Love is sacrificing for the good of someone else. It's exemplified by our Lord when he gave his life for us. He loved his enemies. He displayed love. We experience God's love in our hearts by the Spirit. Romans chapter 5, verse 5 says that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Another reason why you cannot give this list to someone who does not believe Christ and expect them to really get it is because they have not tasted themselves what love is. But if you know Christ, you have received the greatest love that can ever be displayed. Romans 5, 8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's our doctrinal statement. That's what we believe to the core is that God shows his love through Christ. And so if you've tasted of that, you know something of love. Turn over to 1 John chapter 4. When you have been shown real love by God through Christ, you know now how you ought to love others. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 13. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 
In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. True love is impossible without the spirit in your life and without tasting of the the love of God through the cross of Christ. Love is a tall task because it calls you to give up your preferences your daily schedule, your daily planner for the good of others. You can probably think if you were to be given the assignment, you could think pretty quickly of 10 ways or 10 people that God is calling you to love in a sacrificial way. There are examples of love all around us that show the beauty of this fruit. Know of some missionaries who are in Eastern Europe, and they live in a place where there is almost no evangelical church. They have the only one in their radius and sphere of influence, and it's small. It meets in a house. That means that pretty much everyone around them are unbelievers, That alone shows that their love for God is something that's supernatural because they gave up everything to go to a place that is hard, that has no evangelical witness and willing to spend their life with the tedious task of bringing the, the gospel to a people who are unwilling to receive it. That's a love for God that is supernatural. But beyond that, this family has endured a number of difficulties in their ministry, they've for a long time lived, although they're a large family without a van that could transport their whole family, and so they'd have to do workarounds anytime they'd want to go somewhere. They finally received a gift of a van and were able to purchase one that would accommodate their large family. And you might think that they would be just thrilled and finally they feel like they've arrived for their family, but love doesn't stop with that. It goes on and seeks to use the blessings God has given you to bless others. They live close enough to Ukraine that when the war hit in Ukraine, they were ready for action. They became aware of an opportunity to get to the Ukraine border and begin transporting refugees to safe havens. Guess what they used their van for? driving a day and a half nonstop to go pick up a van load of people fleeing a war-torn country. As they returned from their first trip full of mothers and children, they were told by the refugee agency, just get back as quick as you can. Well, this Christian couple full of love sees the moms and their children, and says, no way, 
These moms need food for their kids. And they called the refugee agency, and the refugee agency said, don't get emotionally involved. Just get back. Well, the husband recognized that Christians don't always think the way that secularists do. Saw those moms and those children and said, we're stopping for a hot meal. The mothers said, no, we've got sausages in our suitcases, which they took as code for we don't have money to pay for a hot meal. The missionaries said they would cover it. This is an example of practical love for your neighbor that is rooted in love for God. It just keeps giving at no And no thought of your own convenience and your own preferences. Since that trip, those missionaries have made that day and a half round trip again and again, giving and giving and giving of themselves. They've helped a mom who had a special needs child who had to carry her 40 pound child everywhere they went, they helped her get a stroller. They gave away their guitar to a talented young musician who had to leave his guitar back home. They just keep on giving. It's sacrificial. And it's not just a mere mercy ministry. They are doing this in the name of Christ. One of their neighbors, seeing all that they were doing, came up to them and said, I notice what's going on. And remember, they are surrounded by unbelievers, including this neighbor. And this neighbor said to them, this means your faith is not fake. It is real. Your faith in Christ is manifest when the Spirit bears the fruit of love in your life. And you know that Jesus himself said that they will know you are my disciples by your love. That's the chief fruit. It's love. It gives of self with no thought of self. The next fruit is joy. Joy. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Because a life lived without God is in constant pursuit of temporary pleasures and gets disgruntled when those pleasures leave. And it has no lasting joy, no lasting contentment. Because as soon as the pleasure is fulfilled, they go on to the next thing looking for the next high. But joy is a fruit of the Spirit because it does not seek primarily temporary pleasures but it is based on promises as true as the word of God that last into eternity. One definition of joy is a joy is a settled state of mind that arises from a sense of God's love for us produced by the spirit and that exists even in the face of difficulties and trials. Joy is the opposite of gloom. 
James chapter 4, verse 9 says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's a description of an exhortation to people who are living a life of sin and are told to forsake that sin, forsake the temporary joys, but you just hear the contrast there, joy and gloom. We know what gloom is, that kind of despair, not getting what you want. Joy is knowing that you've been given what you don't deserve and abiding in the confidence that God gave that to you freely out of his abundant love and will never take it away. Joy stands fast even in the midst of trials. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Joy is this irrepressible possession of the believer who has the Spirit because you have something that cannot be taken away from you. Even if your body fails, even if you face the worst kind of persecutions for your faith, they cannot take away what Christ has done for you and what God has promised to you, and so they can never strip away your true joy. The disciples in Acts chapter 5 had been preaching the gospel, and they were beaten for it, and they were charged not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And the apostles left in Acts 5 verse 41, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The gospel and allegiance to Christ changes your perspective on everything. There was a man who used to sit in the student lounge at the seminary I attended. He was a bit older I don't know a lot about his life, but from what I understood, he had lived a life as a businessman, but was in some sort of accident and had permanent brain damage. He's limited in his mobility and in his cognitive ability as well. But he sat in the student lounge for an hour or so a day at the seminary, and his students would walk in and out, just burdened by all the load of the, the assignments that they have. This man would, would sit there. In that room, and as seminary students came in, he would say, the king is coming. The king is coming back. Lord Jesus is coming to reign. Hallelujah, Jesus is coming. And he would just be like a, a record on repeat, saying that again and again. And he would infuse the joy of the Lord, even though this man's body was broken and was so limited, he made his ministry to sit there and herald the coming of Christ. We need to hear that when we feel that gloom overcoming us, when we're not getting what we want in our flesh. We need to hear the king is coming. Jesus reigns. He has forgiven all of your sins and he is going to rule with righteousness and welcome all of his people in eternal bliss in his kingdom where he reigns with justice and righteousness and perfection. Well, that will instill some joy in the dark days. That is a fruit of the Spirit. It cannot be created by the impetus of unbelievers. It can only come when the Spirit has given you faith 
and confidence in the sure promises that God holds out to you in his word. Joy is a precious fruit of the Spirit. Peace. Peace. Peace denotes really two concepts, peace with God and peace with others. Our relationship, apart from Christ, with God is a broken one. It's one marked by hostilities. But Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That peace in our relationship with God can only be brought about into our hearts through the work of Christ applied by the Spirit. But also, we, because we've been reconciled with Christ, we can now be reconciled with others. Human relationships, once marked by hostilities, are now marked by peace and harmony. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. In Ephesians chapter 4, it expressly states that we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. People might be able to have relative peace with each other, who are unbelievers, but true and abiding peace that will go through thick and thin. And true abiding peace with God can only come by the application of the Spirit. And when you have peace with God, you might find yourself more peaceable with others. But the flesh still is still there. You might have peace with God and you might be a hard person to get along with. Peace is a fruit of the Spirit. Just two quick illustrations about peace, one big one and one little one. The story is well known of those missionaries who went down to Ecuador in the 50s trying to reach the Waldani tribe and were speared to death. You may have heard of that one of those murderers, Minkaye, who killed with a spear missionary Nate Saint. He says, this man, this former murderer, said, when I killed Nate Saint, I didn't know better. No one told us that he had come to show us God's trail. My heart was black and sick in sin, but I heard that God sent his own son his blood dripping and dripping. He washed my heart clean. He came to know the gospel, was transformed by it, and goes on to say, we acted badly, badly, until they brought us God's carving, that's the Bible. Then seeing his carvings and following his good trail, now we live happily and in peace with everyone. Micaiah ended up a preacher and an elder in his church. He ended up baptizing the son of Nate Saint. 
Steve Saint. And Steve Saint referred to Minkaye as father. And Steve Saint's children referred to Minkaye as grandfather. Where does that peace come from? Except some supernatural intervention into this world. By the forgiveness of sins and the cleansing of a bad heart. Steve Saint said, I've never forgotten the pain and heartache of losing my dad. I've known Mikaye since I was a little boy when he took me under his wing. He was one of my dearest friends in the world. Yes, he killed my father, but he loved me and my family. What Minkaye and his tribesmen meant for evil, God used for good. Given the chance to rewrite the story, I, will, I would not be willing to change it. See the peace brought through the Spirit in such an otherwise impossible circumstance? Well, here's the little illustration. Two elders at each other's throat, speaking unkindly to each other, leave a meeting, and this isn't John and I, by the way, <laughs> leave the meeting angered, upset, till one calls the other up and say, hey, brother, I sinned against you in the way I spoke to you. Please forgive me. And the other brother says, I forgive you. Will you please forgive me for the way I treated you? I do forgive you, brother. They come together again, they hug each other, and they get on with work. They're at peace. It's a small one, but if it's not dealt with, that gets really, really big. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. Peace. Next is patience. A patient man or woman is like a large rock. You can push him, shove him, kick at him, rain on him, snow on him. The weather can be blistering hot or icy cold, but he's not moving. One commentator defines patience as this, refusing to be irritated by the wrongs people do to us. Refusing to be irritated by the wrongs people do to us. But patience is not just stoicism. It includes a hopeful waiting, a confident trust in the Lord. Patience on the human side deals with provocation without retaliation. It's forbearing with the other person, even though they sin against you seven time, 70 times. You go on forgiving them. It's not just stoicism because it's rooted in love. Love is patient. You love the other person. Love waits. It's an active waiting. It's a hopeful waiting, a trusting waiting. It's a patient waiting. It's enduring. Patience, perhaps, more than the other virtues listed here is foreign to our natural disposition. Somebody offends you and you off to the races to try to offend them. Have you ever known someone who bears with you in your failures and shortcomings? That's a patient person. When I began my ministry, um, I was so green, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. You might still think that, but you didn't know me 10 years ago. But my mentor, my boss, 
He saw all of my mistakes, the terrible preaching, teaching, the bore interactions I had with others, even the poor way that I would speak to my boss. Never chided me. He never got in my face. He was patient with me. He was so patient to wait for me to grow up some. He wasn't easily provoked by my immaturity. He could have been. He could have been annoyed all the time. Maybe he was, but he never showed it. He was a patient man. He still is. Love is patient. Kindness and goodness, these words go together. Kindness refers to being helpful or beneficial. Goodness is a moral quality that's characterized by interest in the welfare of others. It's often shown in generosity. Of course, this is a marked trait of our God who is generous beyond measure, who gives of his lavish riches onto sinners like us. It says in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, even though we were enmity with God, it says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. You see the kindness of Jesus Christ all through his ministry. He goes into towns and just lavishes them with the love of his mercy. He looked on the crowds and had compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. As he's going to heal Jairus' daughter, he gets stopped by a woman who had a flow of blood and he takes the time to deal with her. He takes the time to stop and deal with a blind man outside of Jericho and heals him. Most of all, he looked at this sin-stricken world and in kindness, he gave his life for it. Love is kind. I hope you have all types of illustrations in your own life of how you've seen kindness to you. When Priscilla and I moved to Washington and we bought a home there, the garage doors didn't work. And it rains a lot there. And there was a couple in our church who found out about this, knew that garage doors were expensive, and didn't want Priscilla to have to unload kids and groceries out in the rain, and so they bought us garage doors. It's by their own generosity, we didn't ask for it. It's just pure kindness rooted in the love of Christ. And I could go on and on and list out so many ways that we've received kindness, but love is kind. Isn't that a wonderful life that's full of kindness? Faithfulness, it goes on. One definition of it is the state of being someone in whom complete confidence can be placed. It denotes an attitude or response that we have toward other people and especially other Christians. It basically means reliable, but reliable in the sense of being single-minded in the pursuit of honoring God. You're not easily swayed by all of these things of the world. You are going to be faithful to God in this world no matter what. And so you are a reliable person to God first. And then those others around you will notice that and you will be a reliable person, a dependable person. Matthew 25 verses 20 through 21 is the end of the parable where a master had given money to his servants and expects them to deal with it well. 
And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit. Then gentleness or meekness or humility I love this definition of it. It is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. It's essentially humility. It's exemplified by our Lord who calls himself gentle and lowly in heart. Or when he comes into Jerusalem, describes our Lord as, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Oh, we can sniff out those people whose heads can't get through the door, can't we? They're just so puffed up with themselves, full of themselves. They are not servant-hearted, but humble people who realize that everything that we have is a gift, are willing to love others in humility, not in a domineering way, but like our Lord and Savior who was gentle and lowly. And finally, self-control. This is restraint of one's emotions, impulses, or desires. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25 says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. This is the person who, by the Spirit, has so been transformed in their heart that they watch what they say. They think before they speak. They avoid inflammatory speech and hostility. They're self-controlled in regard to things like eating and fears and obsessions and impulses. That is the type of person who realizes that you don't need to be a slave to anything except the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who lack self-control are actually slaves of their desires. They see food and they can't help themselves from eat it. They see something they're scared of and they can't help themselves from being afraid of it. They see something that irritates them and they can't keep their tongues from complaining about it. Whereas the self-controlled person has been transformed by God and by his spirit so that you're not a slave to anything except your Lord. And your will is to do his will. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That's a true life. What a lovely life that is. A life dominated by love and expressing itself in all of these other virtues. Paul says, at the end of verse 23, against such things, There is no law. It means you live this way, you're not going to get in trouble for that. You live a life of love, God's not going to be upset with you for that one. But if you submit yourselves to a law, you're going to find yourself falling short all the time. But when the fruit of the Spirit is born in your life, There's no law against these things. 
You can live out these things as much as you want. And you might be thinking, how do I do this? I fall really, 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 really short. How do you do this? I'll give you more answers than just this one, maybe next time. But turn back to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Verse 5, Jesus has just taught his disciples how to pray. And then in verse 5, he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent, or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's more to say, but if you find yourself lacking love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, Maybe the first place to start is to ask God for those things. Because when you're asking God for those things, you're not just asking for your own willpower to do them, you're asking for the Spirit in your life. And God is pleased to answer that prayer. Start there. Humble yourselves before God. Acknowledge your inadequacy. Ask God for His Spirit. God delights to give that to you. Let's pray. Father, having gone through this list, it is so so lovely, the life that you call us to. Father, I thank you that we who were only caught in sin and could only sin prior to Christ, you have made us new and by your Spirit possess some of these fruit. We thank you for that. Father, we concede and confess to you that we do fall short. So we ask you that you would give us your Spirit that we might bear this fruit, or that he might bear this fruit in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.